Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, it's Tom here. We've got a great episode for you today. But before we get into that, I just want to let you know about Spiked's very exciting new daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked sent out every day at 6pm. It gives you your essential roundup of all of the content that we've published that day, along with exclusive commentary from the Spike team that you won't read elsewhere. And it is also completely 100% free. We're publishing more and more these days. So if you want to make sure that you never miss an article or an essay or a podcast, stop what you're doing right now and go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Once again, that's spiked-online.com slash newsletters and today on Spiked. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Sarah Everard tragedy, the ban on protests and the EU's vaccine chaos. It began as a tribute to Sarah Everard, but it has become about so much more. It is thankfully incredibly rare for a woman to be abducted from our streets. So why do so many women still feel so scared? But women don't matter as much as cars, we don't matter as much as fly tipping, we don't matter as much as statues, and the law needs to change that. 33-year-old Sarah Everard went missing two weeks ago as she was walking through Clapham Common, Last week, human remains were found in a woodland in Kent. A Metropolitan Police officer has been charged. He's accused of kidnap and murder. Everard's death has sent shockwaves through Britain. Although few facts about the case are known, there's been a concerted effort by politicians and activists to frame the tragedy as symptomatic of a deeply misogynistic society, where male violence against women is both common and accepted. There have been debates over whether to institute a curfew for men Police will start treating misogyny as a hate crime and the government has put funding towards street lighting and has plans to put plainclothes police officers in nightclubs. Joanna Williams joins us down the line for this section. Joanna is a spiked columnist, director of the think tank Keo, and is also author of Women vs. Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. Joe, what have you made of the response to this tragedy? I think one of the things that shocked me most about it is the speed with which it stopped really having anything to do with poor Sarah Everard, the woman who was murdered. It very, very quickly seemed to move on uh, the discussion and have very little to do with either her life or even the, the circumstances of her death. It's almost as if Sarah Everard has become this receptacle for women to pour out their personal truths, their own experiences of sexual harassment, which might be anything really from having been catcalled in the street to far more serious instance of of sexual harassment. I think this is not only tragic for poor Sarah and her family, 
but it, it kind of really trivializes some of the, the, well, the horrible circumstances of her murder or alleged murder by conflating all these different types of behaviors together. I think the other problem with this really is that some voices are being heard a lot louder than others. And the women who are shouting most loudly about their own experiences of sexual harassment are not necessarily representative of women as a whole. And yet their experiences are being used to justify some quite dramatic changes in the law. Ella, what have you made of it? Well, you often hear this kind of refrain, and it's I went down to one of the protests in Parliament Square organised by Sisters Uncut, and some Labour MPs were speaking out a few days after the scenes at Clapham Common, the vigil for Sarah Everard. And it's really interesting because on the one hand, you have people holding signs and saying, we refuse to, you know, we will not be afraid, you know, using that slogan, reclaim our streets, referencing the reclaim the night movement of the 70s. But then in the same breath, there's these same people, politicians, campaigners, contemporary feminists say what we need is to educate and to legislate, to have more intervention off the back of the tragedy of Sarah Everard. And actually, what has been suggested that you outlined in your introduction, Fraser, whether it be further police intervention, I mean, Jess Phillips saying on Ma that she literally wants as many wardens that there are giving out parking tickets, watching women on the street, further intervention by police in terms of making misogyny a hate crime, you know, having police intervening into the minute detail of women's daily interactions with men, or indeed putting curfews on people is doing exactly what the men who harm women, statistically rare as they are, want, which is to make women live in fear. I mean, there's this really crass idea that what you can do to solve this is just to kind of give every man in existence a bit of a consent class and a bit better sex education and then rape and murder won't happen. It's completely misunderestimating and misunderstanding, as Joe says, the specific nature of what is happening when a man decides to, decide being the important word, to rape or murder a woman. This isn't just a case of kind of an arbitrary sense of people not knowing what they're doing, but it is a determined attempt to make women afraid to assert male dominance over women. And so what you're really doing by convincing women that they have to be afraid that, you know, giving into this sort of panic that has been struck up that every woman is going to turn out like Sarah Everard when we know statistically that that isn't the case, is giving into that sexist, misogynist, if you like, view that women should be afraid of men, that women are less than men, that women are weaker and more in need of protection. And so it's incredibly depressing because I've heard lots of use of the term safety, lots of use of the term scared, feared, afraid, and no one has been talking about women's freedom. And that's been really telling in these last few days. Tom, I think the speed with which it was politicised was pretty remarkable and also really quite grotesque, to be honest with you, because it hasn't been politicised to the end of actually trying to change some sort of law or right some sort of wrong that would actually stop this from happening again. It's not clear how you could do that in a case this unique and this horrifying. These things do unfortunately happen from time to time. Try and make sure they don't happen again, but it's not entirely clear how you would do that. But it's just been sucked into the culture war and sucked into the attempt to vindicate a pre-existing nouveau feminist position, which, as everyone's been saying, is to suggest women are at unique and constant threats based on this pretty dubious assertion that there's like a sliding scale between a wolf whistle and a, and a violent murder of a woman. And this is something which on the one hand can feel utterly trivial. You hear people repeating mantras like, we've got to teach our boys not to 
rape as if it is that simple that we need to create a taboo around that kind of behavior when it's quite clear that that exists broadly in society. The problem is people at the fringes, but also it comes at a huge cost. This kind of almost routine, this kind of like performance art that people get into on certain issues, whether it's misogyny or racism, which is basically to paint an excessively bleak picture to, as Tim Black wrote on Spike this week, to make Britain just look like a kind of misogynistic hellscape mm. in which, in the words of Jess Phillips, we care less about women than we do about fly tipping, about cars and about statues, really does no one any favours because it just vexes what are very, very important discussions. It trivialises them, as, as Joe was saying. It really kind of gets you into a position where you're just arguing with these kind of identitarian fever dreams rather than the actual reality of what's going on and what needs to be done. And as Joe was saying you green light authoritarianism. There's no two ways about it. If the situation is as bleak as everyone is suggesting it is, that you know formal legal equality in all different sorts of realms, all kinds of progress, has basically led to a situation where things are as worse as they ever have been in the names of some commentators, that is going to green light some really authoritarian moves. And things like plainclothes police officers in, in clubs are only the more kind of risible aspects of those sort of contributions. So I think it's just, it's so important to point out that, that some perspective and some sober discussion of these issues and not letting singular tragedies get sucked into a broader culture war it's not just a kind of pernickety thing to make these arguments it's actually really really important to make sure you don't make society worse in other ways if you see what i mean yeah and it, it is striking just to you know just think about how some of the suggestions are just so far removed from this particular case even though they've been animated by it you know the, the suggestion of plain clothes police officers in clubs is you know case in point sarah everett was not at a club when did this suddenly <laughs> come in you know and you have similar ideas around misogyny as a hate crime. Well, we have no idea whether, you know, what this person was thinking in his head at the time and whether, you know, a stiffer sentence would make any difference. I, I seriously doubt it. So probably about 99% of the commentary that's come out this week has had no connection to the actual event and is just spinning a kind of pre-existing yarn. Joe. What are your thoughts? I think the point that Tom makes about keeping some perspective here, or rather trying to reclaim some perspective, is really crucial. Uh, it seems to me that this week has been terrible for men and terrible for women. Just no one wins from the discussion the way it's headed at the moment. Men don't win by normalising the view that they're all misogynistic and abusive, but neither do women win by normalising the view that we're all constantly living in fear. To put some perspective on it, the vast majority majority of women do walk home alone and arrive home safely. And that happens every single night of the week, the length and breadth of the country. Unfortunately, it doesn't make for a gripping headline or a really tantalising social media anecdote to say, I walked home alone and I arrived home safely. So the, the problem is at the moment, we're ramping up this idea that women are living in fear and men are misogynistic. And the only people who really gain are the very few who seem hell-bent on introducing this authoritarian legislation into society. And of course, the irony of all of this, as we saw at the protests, is handing more power over to police who were then the ones manhandling women uh, at the Clapham Common Vigil. One of the things that this has really revealed is the disjunct between women's fear and the reality of the danger that women live under. So in particular, you know, statistically, of the 1,500 women who were murdered by men in the last 10 years, only 8% of that number 
were snatched off the street by strangers. We know that most women who are murdered are murdered by male ex-partners, people they know in a domestic setting. And yet it is true, and you have to grapple with this fact, that almost all women will have have some anecdote, some reference that made them shiver when they heard about the news of Sarah Everard, because whether or not we've any of us have been attacked at night, we've all felt some level of fear. And what we've done in the last week is give in to that fear and said, well, yes, the fears are realised, see, because Sarah was murdered, rather than asking the question, why is it that women are living in a perpetual state of fear when there isn't necessarily any reason to, statistically or otherwise? Otherwise. And it's kind of being on the one hand sympathetic to the fact that, of course, this is going to make people frightened, but then having the courage to politically say you have to, as women and men, but particularly as women, own the streets, refuse to be afraid, you know, actually take a political stance on this. And, you know, individually, no one's going to say stand your ground when someone comes up behind you at three o'clock in the morning and have a discussion about the rights and wrongs of women's freedom. That's ridiculous. But when we're in the public realm in the public square talking about this, rather than asking for further protection, as it happens more often than not by men, whether that be police officers or lawmakers, but asserting that women can do these things on their own, can make a change on their own, is it seems to me a much more progressive view than giving in to the politics of fear. I'm very nervous, I'm afraid, and I disagree with Alice Lightly here. I'm just very nervous about statements that begin all women or all women have experienced a moment of fear like this when walking home alone. I mean, at risk of sounding as if I'm just being perverse, I haven't. And I certainly know plenty of women who have not felt that shudder and felt that terrible experience or saw themselves reflected in what happened to Sarah Everard. And I'd be very anxious about promoting that view that all women do have this experience. I think partly there's just difficulty speaking on behalf of any particular group of people. But we can even look at some surveys, one survey that came out this week that's actually had very, very little publicity is a YouGov Eurostat survey that's taken a broad sweep of women's experiences across Europe. It uses a very broad definition of sexual harassment that includes even somebody saying that you look attractive directly to your face, jokes, winks, all these kinds of things that we've become used to. And that reports that 52% of women have experienced sexual harassment at some point in their lives. And only 19% say that they've experienced sexual harassment in the past five years. Now, I wouldn't want to say that this poll is absolutely right and other polls are absolutely wrong. I think we can take all of these polls with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But the fact is, it does put a slightly different slant on this idea that all women are living in fear or, or experience moments of fear. All women are victims of sexual harassment. The, the very broad definition of sexual harassment that is used in that poll, for me, says very low levels of sexual harassment. And I have to say that's far more in keeping with my own experience and the experience of women that I speak to. With just a few weeks to go before the pubs open their doors, everyone needs to start looking their best again. And for that, I'd recommend shaving with Harry's. One thing I love about Harry's is the smoothness of the shave. I know that even when I've left it far too long between shaves, the experience will be as comfortable as ever. To ensure the best quality products, Harry's bought a factory in Germany that's been making blades for over 100 years. The factory team has more than 600 engineers, designers, craftsmen and chemists that make Harry's products from the finest materials and ingredients. All of this ensures a quality shave at a fair price. 
Harry's razors include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. They've got a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, and it comes with a rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support our podcast and get your trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash spiked right now. That's harrys.com slash spiked. The Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill passed its second reading in the House of Commons this week. The enormous bill contains provisions on everything from knife crime and dangerous driving to vandalising statues. Most controversially, it hands the police sweeping new powers to suppress protests. Protests which cause serious unease and upset could be shut down and criminal penalties can be handed out for anyone who causes serious annoyance. The bill is so broad that it even covers demonstrations made up of just a single person. The bill is arguably the strongest indication yet that aspects of the lockdown are going to be with us for a long time after the pandemic. Tom, what are your thoughts? The scale of this bill and the restrictions that it greenlights on protests really cannot be overstated. I think these are some of the most breathtaking and sweeping restrictions on the right to assembly, the right to protest that we've seen in a generation. And as you were saying there, the sorts of definitions that are contained within it are so remarkably broad. So it's building on the Public Order Act 1986, and it brings noise into the equation. So if a protest generates noise that may result in serious disruption to the activities of an organisation or have the relevant, quote, impact on people in the vicinity of the protest, this can become the conditions by which protest can be controlled. And when you're considering the fact that basically any protest you can think of is going to involve making noise, Mm. is going to involve having an impact. Otherwise, there's literally no point having one. This is a blank check to police protest. And it gets worse even because when you dig into the bill, there is a provision which allows the Home Secretary via statutory instrument to redefine what serious disruption means. Mm. So even if somehow there was some sort of protest, bearing in mind these can include one person protests (laughs) that doesn't meet all of these criteria... They can just change the definition of what serious disruption means and then and clamp down anyway. This is a really terrifying restriction on liberty. It is something which I think in the reaction to it, though, we've also seen the paucity of the defence of liberty, if you like, that mm. you see from certain quarters. So first of all, the Tory libertarians, not for the first time in the course of the past year in particular, have been next to useless. And many of them have supported this bill with some caveats, suggested that you need it to tackle the radical new tactics of groups like Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion have broken no new ground other than like weird street theatre. This is not a uniquely threatening organisation protest-wise. So that's complete nonsense. And of course you have uproar from the left, but it's uproar which is entirely hypocritical. They don't care about freedom. They greenlit the lockdown on protest, which has existed for much of the past year. And these are people who quite rightly don't want noisy protests to be criminalised, but are quite happy with offensive tweets being criminalised. So I think this piece of legislation is very serious. It needs to be tackled, particularly in the context of making sure that lockdown era restrictions don't become permanent, which I think is something that we'll get into more specifically. But it is also a reminder of just how crap the defence of freedom is in, in the mainstream, if you like, and how when we're kind of in the process of trying to fight for all of our freedoms all over again, how weak that defence feels and, and how partial it feels from many quarters. Yeah, there's a huge amount of double standards going on. There are some that have said that you shouldn't criticise people for being late to the party and only realising that it's a problem for 
police to feel as free to come in and crack heads as they did around Sarah Everard's vigil on Clapham Common. But it has to be noted that no one made that much of a fuss when, coincidentally, uh, another redhead was arrested, a woman was arrested and slammed to the ground. In much this wasn't the same, you, was it? Was no, <laughs> in much the same way as Patsy Stevenson, I think her name was, mm. the woman who hit the headlines after the Sarah Everard vigil, uh, an anti-lockdown protest. In, in fact, in January, 16 people were arrested on Clapham Common. Yeah. And four people were arrested at the vigil uh, last weekend. So, I mean, there wasn't this much of a pushback either on the police or on the prospect of protests being cracked down on. It seems some people have only got into a fuss about it because of the nature of the politics on display at the Sarah Everard mm. vigil. But it is important because the reason why this hasn't come out of the blue and actually the reason why there isn't even actually that much outrage about it, particularly among politicians. Labour was abstaining on this up until mm. being pressurised by a few women's groups. And even now they're not calling to kill the bill as all the protesters are asking for, but instead just to kind of amend it, it here and there to make it a little more explicit that the police will be working for minorities and women and all kinds of crap like that. But the precedent for people being lax when it comes to watching how governments are in increasingly encroaching on our right to protest has been a problem for a long time. So, I mean, Tom, you said that Extinction Rebellion isn't doing anything new. But even if you look back into the kind of history of, for example, trade unions deciding to opt for one-day strikes that, you know, limiting disruption because they, whether it be on the tube or whether it be the nurses' strike or whatever it is, the idea that you have to kind of kowtow to the sense of you can't cause any disruption has been going on for a long time. And it's not just been, you know, legislation that's been cracking down. It's also been people not having enough guts to stand up and say, we're not afraid to make some noise and we're not afraid to actually even break the rules. And part of the problem is, you know, you've got this tussle especially with us who are not fans of Extinction Rebellion, particularly not fans of the undemocratic nature of their protests, which they are claiming to make massive changes to society on the basis of, as Tom says, a few instances of street theatre. But you, because we're not idiots, you understand the precedent that it sets yeah. of taking your dislike or disgust or disdain at one group and applying a rule to all others. So when the truckers came in around Brexit and did a protest that was incredibly disruptive, probably as disruptive as the Extinction Rebellion crowd, I was fine with that because I aligned with their politics and I didn't align with Extinction Rebellions. And some people just can't seem to look even just a slight bit into the future and imagine what these laws might do if it was placed on them or related to their particular political cause. And it, it reveals a kind of shallow level at which a lot of this is happening, and which is very dangerous because if you don't challenge the root cause of all of these issues, it's not just Priti Patel being a particularly authoritarian, though she has got that bent in her. There's a long-standing move towards slowly chipping away at the right to protest in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, human rights lawyers will have a stupid argument over whether protest is currently banned. But as Luke Gittos points out, that's pretty academic. You know, we've mm -hmm. seen the numbers of protests that have been protesters have been getting arrested and fined and Piers Corbyn, bless him, has been fined £10,000 at least once for one of his protests. And you do wonder, well, where were these people then? You know, mm -hmm. I've never really bought the justification that the coronavirus laws are temporary, but this policing bill is permanent when we know that essentially with every crisis, every, every kind of power that the state assumes, it's very reluctant to give up. And, you know, even if it's not specifically via the pandemic, we know that the government has had a good time of, of mm. managing the public, you know, keeping down dissent. It's a very kind of useful period for them to stop things, you know, erupting into populist outbursts. So they, they quite like this period. And, mm. and of course they want it to 
to stay. Exactly. You don't need to think that every kind of democratically elected government just harbours these ambitions to become some sort of tin pot dictatorship yeah. as soon as a crisis comes around. It's the fact that having these powers is convenient for them. Um, it allows them to dodge a certain level of accountability. If there's an unpopular protest that all of the public really dislike, it allows them to crack down on it, whether that could be extreme environmentalists or whether that could be the far right or whatever. There's always mm. going to be some political capital and, you know, cracking down on unsavoury and irritating movements. And I think the complacency with which people just allowed protests to be criminalised for the past year, and as you say, it's completely academic, the idea whether it wasn't explicitly prohibited, but it wasn't an exception to the lockdown rules for a long time. It was for a bit, and then it wasn't. Effectively, it has been criminalised for this past year. And again, just rests on the fact that it almost doesn't matter how you feel about the original lockdown. The fact that protest was banned effectively at a time in which we were being asked to go through the most remarkable restrictions on liberty in living memory should have raised more eyebrows than it did, but purely because of the fact that the only people who wanted to go out and protest at that point were Piers Corbyn and his friends. Mm. No one cared. It's really that simple. And it's so striking that people are almost surprised that this has led to a situation in which they want to put those powers on a kind of permanent statutory footing because they feel that they have the opportunity to do so. So it's just really quite striking that kind of level of naivety. But again, we come back to that question of where is the real pushback going to come from? Because at the moment, it just does feel so partial on all sides. And as Ella was saying, you just have to defend free speech as it is with assembly and protest for everyone or for no one. And at the moment, you've barely got people (laughs) defending it for their own side of politics. I'm trying to be more productive with my time to do more to stretch my brain, to spend less time mindlessly scrolling and more time learning. So I watch and listen to learn with The Great Courses Plus. This is the streaming service that lets you learn with purpose, and I think you're going to love it too. With The Great Courses Plus, you have unlimited access to thousands of video and audio lectures on hundreds of fascinating topics. Learn a new language, discover what Einstein got wrong, even gain valuable insights into your own public persona. There really is something for everyone. Lately, I've been listening to The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. This 14th century plague killed 75 million people over the course of 10 years, smashing social and economic hierarchies to smithereens, leaving its survivors in a world completely transformed. It really puts our own predicament into perspective. Imagine facing COVID without modern science and modern medicine, or living in lockdown without the internet. I also learned that the high mortality during the Black Death may not have even just been down to bubonic plague alone. Some scientists believe anthrax might have played a role too. One thing you can always be sure of with The Great Courses Plus is that the courses are taught by the best professors and top experts in their field. And the material is all extensively vetted and researched. It's high-quality content, reliable, fact-based information you can trust. Plus, with The Great Courses Plus app... You're free to watch, listen and learn on any device at any time, no matter where you are in the world. I'm so glad I've found a more productive way to spend my time and I want you to try The Great Courses Plus too. Get started with a free trial of unlimited access. Just visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. That's 14 days to learn anything you want for free. So sign up now. Remember, The Great Courses Plus com slash spiked the 
The EU's vaccination programme continues to lurch from crisis to crisis. Last week, Denmark suspended its use of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines after fears that patients were developing blood clots. By this week, dozens of European countries had followed suit. This was even as the European Medicines Agency and the WHO were at pains to say there was no evidence the jabs were unsafe. An official in Italy's health agency admitted that this was a political decision. European leaders have been casting doubt on the safety and efficacy of AstraZeneca's vaccine since it became apparent earlier this year there were problems with the supply chain. Even before AstraZeneca was taken out of circulation, millions of doses were sitting unused in Europe. Then on Wednesday, Ursula von der Leyen threatened to block vaccine exports to countries whose rollouts performed better than the EU's, namely Britain. She even said that the EU could seize AstraZeneca's manufacturing plants and their intellectual property. Tom, what have you made of this? Well, it is just a continuation of this, frankly, suicidal strategy that we've seen from the European Union and European leaders over the course of the past few months now, which as many people have pointed out, makes no sense whatsoever. On the one hand, you're trying to extract more AstraZeneca vaccines, largely from the UK, because mm. of this bogus idea that we're basically hogging all of them, despite the fact it's because obviously we got in a lot earlier than the EU, invested a lot up front in terms of the infrastructure, all of those arguments everyone's very well aware of. So at the one hand, via this kind of public shaming, via the threat of export controls for other vaccines that are on mainland Europe, trying to extract more of these, but at the same time, constantly undermining faith in the in the vaccines themselves in an mm. effort really just to cover their own backs because it's less of a failing if the vaccine was, as they were trying to suggest earlier on, hastily approved or quasi-ineffective amongst older people, or as we've seen in the past week, potentially causing blood clots, even though there's no evidence to suggest that blood clots are happening in the population who have had the AstraZeneca vaccine more than they would normally or even more than they would in relation to the Pfizer vaccine, I think yeah. I'm right in saying. So this is all complete nonsense. But then you have to remember how high the stakes are, and not just for people in Europe and Britain, where the hesitancy around the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular is starting to spread from mainland Europe, where it has been very high and very alarming, even to Britain a little bit as well. But the rest of the world, because the, the Oxford vaccine is the one that's being produced at cost price. It's the one which is really holds out hope of really helping to vaccinate the entire world because of how inexpensive it is and all the rest of it. To constantly throw suspicion onto that is really, really alarming. And to do it to what? To deflect criticism, to try and cover up for their own monumental failures, to try and again stave off and ignore the fact that they've got a really fundamental crisis of legitimacy as a result of how they've handled the COVID pandemic and the vaccine issues in particular. So I just think you're seeing a perfect illustration here of how the EU operates, which is that the EU and the individual leaders that make it up is fundamentally interested in its own survival mm. over as it seems the survival of its own citizens. And I think that's, I can't really quite find the words to describe how grotesque that is, frankly. Ella. Rob Lyons wrote a great article for Spike this week about the precautionary principle and the way in which the explicitly ministers from member states of the European Union have quoted it, mean Ireland's minister saying, we are working on the basis of the precautionary principle. It's kind of a fundamental strategy of actually most of European Union's approach to not just the pandemic, but politics in general, which is be completely allergic to any kind of innovation, be completely allergic to any kind of sensible risk taking of which we've seen has been necessary in the pandemic. I mean, the UK, as we've said several times on this podcast, took a punt on AstraZeneca. I mean, a safe punt. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't like they kind of turned the blind eye to the notion of regulation or anything like that, but has taken a punt and it's paid off. And it has meant that we are, you know, as we've said many times, celebrating the fact that the vaccine rollout has been so great. But on the basis of this precautionary principle, 
as Tom said, people are potentially dying and missing out on life-saving treatment. But it's also the case that it shows the way in which all, not to kind of turn this into a Brexit thump thumping point, but you do have to point out the fact that all the things, the characterizations of the European Union before this pandemic were that they, you know, it's almost like they led with the heart rather than, you know, rather than the head, that they were all about love and sharing and internationalism and, you know, progressiveness and, and competence. And yeah, yeah, yeah. their member states. <laughs> That, you know, that really this was about that the European is about a collective when this is the absolute opposite of acting in a collective. You know, we've had sort of in the last few weeks discussions about the COVAX program and bureaucrats from other nation states castigating the UK and saying, you know, talking about vaccine nationalism. I mean, what is this? What What is von der Leyen doing other than engaging in the, some of the most outright vaccine nationalism that I've ever seen. There's also the case of, I heard on the Today program this morning, which is just mind-blowing, someone talking about the fact that the European Union could be engaged in a disinformation campaign. I mean, that's remarkable. And there is a huge amount of truth behind that because there is also the case of, as you've already mentioned, the sort of disinformation around old people and the kind of the lax use of any kind of talk about follow the science, the lax use of any kind of scientific evidence for their claims. So if we are really at a stage in which this beloved institution, this kind of holier than thou organization, which people have been fawning over for the last five years is now engaged in an international disinformation campaign. Can we now start to look critically at the European Union, please? You do have to take a step back and just think how utterly psychotic Mm. this whole episode is it's so obviously you know trying to deflect from failures but at at the cost of people's lives it's not just their failures that are going to cost people's lives because there isn't the supply of vaccines in europe as there as there should be had the program been run competently but because of this disinformation smear campaign is going to cost lives because people are refusing the vaccine when they probably wouldn't have otherwise and you know it's worth reiterating the fact that about half of the doses of the AstraZeneca vaccines, even before this suspension came in, in Europe, were just sitting there unused, Mm. not going into people's arms. Think of all the people, not just dying in Europe, but in Brazil, in the developing world, in Britain, whatever, you know, all these places that could have been using this vaccine, and it's just sitting there doing, doing nothing. And then in the knowledge that it's sitting there doing nothing, then you have Ursula von der Leyen saying, well, we're not going to export any of it. Mm. You know, we're going to seize the various, you know, factories producing it so no one else can have it so that it can sit in our warehouses doing nothing. And just to make clear that it is the AstraZeneca vaccine that is being snubbed. They've used 50% of the AstraZeneca vaccine, but 70% of the Pfizer and Moderna stuff. So it is clearly a product of this disinformation campaign, not just that they haven't got around to applying it yet. So the the whole thing is such a crazy kind of act of self-sabotage that sadly is going to have a contagion. It is going to cast doubt among people in Britain, among people, you know, in, in other countries about the safety mm. of this. And, you know, the, the consequences of that are so shocking and catastrophic. But it is that point which Ella was saying about how it does sometimes feel a little bit crass to try and spin political points off of this, but you can't really avoid the analysis, which this has completely undermined the whole claims of the European Union, the whole claims of technocracy Mm. going into this crisis. I remember we had a podcast about this at the start of the coronavirus crisis, talking about how the expectation then was that this was going to vindicate technocracy and completely put to bed populism, that supranational institutions are going to shine. And what we've seen is that it's fallen over completely. Mm. And I think one of the key things, which I think was really underlined 
by that um, leading Italian health official who made the statement about the decision to pause using AstraZeneca in that country was basically political. It was influenced by France and Germany. Is the fact that when you create a situation in which European leaders are almost more reliant for their legitimacy, almost more interested in maintaining this supranational order than they are in being directly accountable to their own people when they have almost other obligations if you like over and above what it is actually looking after the fundamental welfare of their own citizens you are going to get into some pretty distorted situations where again the priority of just trying to engage in some kind of absurd face-saving gesture almost which is what a lot of this is even if it comes at a more severe cost to what they the hole that they've already kind of dug themselves into then that is something that has to be thought about and and it's just so striking that we've seen made so clear, which is despite all these claims that institutions like this are about good governance, following cold reason, coming together in solidarity, it's demonstrated itself to be the opposite of all of those things. It's nakedly political decisions to the end of keeping the show on the road rather than what actually works, what is scientifically accurate, and what will actually, in this case, save people's lives. And I, I just don't see how particularly this current iteration of the leadership of the European Union can recover from this in any way, show people. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.